Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the About to Review podcast, here to amplify diverse voices in media. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice, wherever you are listening to this right now. Go on there, give it stars or thumbs up or whatever it might be. You can also go on the website, abouttoreview.com, to read full episode descriptions and notes and links to the films that are talked about, and just learn more about the show in general. If you have any questions, you can email those to abouttreview at gmail.com, and definitely follow the podcast on social media at abouttreview, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Easiest way to get a hold of the show is right there. Okay, so after a little bit of a break, uh, I am back with three new reviews for movies that are in theaters now or will be in theaters this week. Starting with the movie that is already in theaters by the time this episode drops, and that is Venom, Let There Be Carnage, followed by No Time to Die, the latest James Bond film, and then rounding it out with Lamb, the new A24 produced film. So those three episodes, those three episodes, those three reviews will be on this episode. As you can tell, it has been a while since I did one of these episodes. Uh, so yeah, before we get into the reviews, we'll go to the original theme song created by Damon Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Venom, Let There Be Carnage, directed by Andy Serkis this time around, is the sequel to 2018's Venom. We get the whole cast of characters back again for this one. The returning characters, so Tom Hardy as Eddie Brock, Michelle Williams as Anne, Reed Scott, Dr. Dan, uh, and uh, who is the cop again? I was, Oh, that's Stephen Graham. Stephen Graham is amazing as Detective Mulligan. We get those folks back uh, in this sequel that picks up pretty much right after the last one. I mean, I would say it is maybe like a month or so, a couple months. Actually, no, it has been, yeah, like a few months, but very quickly after the first one. And the benefit with this that I will get into kind of right away. So Kelly Marcel uh, did the screenplay for this. Her and Tom Hardy have been working together for years on like the theater side of things. This one, she got the chance to do the screenplay and she has done a bunch of screenplays before. So this actually, because she was involved in the last one, I think she was one of the only writers to actually be involved in both. I would have to double check, but it is really good to have the same writer from film to film because it does actually feel cohesive. So that part, I, I wanted to give some credit to, to Kelly Marcel for this. But yeah, as this movie picks up, Eddie's life is still <laughs> topsy-turvy, trying to get along with this Venom symbiote that he has been bonded with that he cannot get rid of. Still trying to just figure out his life and what he is doing 
Venom still wants to eat people. And they do describe it in this film as something interesting where the reason that he hungers for brains so much, like why he wants to eat everybody's face and head, is because of a certain chemical that is in the brain that is only in human brains and in chocolate? Um, for some reason, so not quite sure how that makes sense. But it at least gives it some sort of reason as to why he wants that. It was always a question in the comics, back when I was reading these in the 90s, why Venom just wanted to eat people. Venom was a terrible monster in the 90s, at least in his first iterations. And we never really got an explanation to why he ate people or biologically how it worked. Like, the Venom symbiote eats somebody, digests it, but then where does that go? It got really confusing, and there were some interesting articles about that. But in this, they do kind of explain that, oh, it is because of this chemical. Sure, why not? Uh, the post credit scene in the first movie that had to do with Cletus Cassidy, played by Woody Harrelson, is the reason this movie is called Let There Be Carnage. We get this backstory of Eddie Brock when he was a reporter cracked the case that led to Cletus Cassidy getting the death penalty and all of these things and because of that Cletus Cassidy hates Eddie Brock by mm, a situation when Eddie goes to visit Cletus in jail part of the Venom symbiote gets transferred over to Cletus Cassidy, who then it gets mutated, and he becomes the villainous monstrosity carnage, fueled by murderous intent and by murderous rage, versus when Venom bonded with Eddie Brock. Eddie Brock, yeah, has a bunch of issues. He is not a murderer. Cletus Cassidy is a straight-up murderer, so gets bonded to him and morphs into this other symbiote, this sibling, if you will, in Carnage. Uh, the basic framework is that, where Cletus becomes Carnage. We get a weird backstory where Carnage and the new villainess of the piece, Naomi Harris, as Shriek, essentially. They never call her that. This is Shriek from the comics, from the 90s, from like the Maximum Carnage storyline. We get their backstory, and it, it is like this... Bon not Bonnie and Clyde, more natural-born killers. We get this relationship between them that is just so volatile, so angry, and just so destructive, but they love each other. Yeah. Um, I, I do not have a lot of good things to say about this movie, but I do have some good things to say about this movie. Uh, starting off, one, it is short. Uh, it is about 97 minutes, even though at times it feels much longer because when this movie drags, it really drags. And in a 90-minute film, that, that can be a little bit rough, but the runtime being a little bit shorter, solid. The biggest flower that I can give to this movie, Tom Hardy crushes it. Tom Hardy is so good in this movie and when I say so good, I mean it specifically in that in so many scenes, he is acting his ass off 
not knowing what the final image is going to be, what the final kind of CGI rendering, what it is going to look like. He has to perform. He has to act as if he can see this thing. And that is incredible. And he really, really shines in multiple parts of this movie. It reminds me actually of, if you go way back, you can find clips of um, Ed Wynn, who is the Mad Hatter in the old Alice in Wonderland. When you find old, like you can see clips of him. They did, I think there was like a, a Disney Channel exclusive or some presentation where they showed the actual shooting of that scene where it shows Edwin pouring cups and doing all these things and saying the lines while the artists were using him as reference. They, and they pulled that audio from that basically screen test and used it in the film. Edwin, especially when that movie came out, he had no idea what the animation was going to look like. But it was just him at this table. I think the actress who played Alice or did the voice for Alice was there for some of it. It is just the two of them at this table in just a studio. It was not made up. It was nothing. It was just this white room. And he had to just perform. The other person that this reminded me of was Bob Hoskins when they did Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the 80s or 90s. I forget when that movie came out. Uh, Late 80s, early 90s. Bob Hoskins had no idea what Roger Rabbit was going to look like, how they were going to interact, what that was going to be. And when you watch some of the scenes without Roger Rabbit there, when Bob Hoskins just had to guess as to where he would be looking, what he would be interacting with, it is phenomenal. So Tom Hardy, I absolutely respect his dedication to this. He is just so good in that regard. So that was huge. I absolutely loved that. Um, <laughs> now, Tom Hardy as Eddie Brock, as far as his accent goes, where the hell is Eddie Brock supposed to be from in this movie? In quote-unquote reality, in the comics history, he is from New York, same as Peter Parker, hence where they have a relationship, blah, blah, blah. In this movie, it takes place in California. Eddie Brock is prominently wearing a Detroit Lions jacket in like 90% of his scenes. Like a Detroit Lions old school letterman's jacket. Which to me, people who wear Detroit Lions gear, anybody who is a sports fan, gear like that, especially old school gear, you have been a fan a long time. <laughs> but his accent is not even Detroit either. And it is not California. It definitely is not New York. And it is just this weird mishmash of things that at some times, at some points, was a little bit hard to understand because I was just not sure what he was actually going for. So that, that was a little bit um, odd, I will say. Uh, the main kind of storyline that this is, based around is kind of the lethal protector story from the 90s, which I'm pretty sure I have in a long box in my office somewhere bagged and boarded because so all of us in the 90s when we were collecting stuff like that, we were like, oh my God, this is going to be worth so much money. Not really. Uh, but the lethal protector storyline essentially gets mentioned a bunch of times in this film. And I wish 
that they had done more of the things from that storyline in this movie in the sense of Venom as a character is not Batman. He is not always brooding at night, in the rain, all of these things. He is out during the day. He is doing things. He is, again, in some at some point, being a lethal protector, being out there during day, helping kids at one point, and then he eats a bad guy. It happened. It was weird. Um, but it was during the day. In these movies, they make him more of a Batman-type character, and I'm not quite sure why. Like, Venom is funny. Like, the interactions they have are funny, but when he fully becomes Venom, and when Cletus Cassidy, Woody Harrelson, fully becomes Carnage, they go to the same CGI tropes of, it is at night, it is raining, it is dark, to essentially hide some of the CGI. I get why they do that. I understand from a technical perspective, but it was not really needed. Like, you... You do not have to make these dark and brooding characters at night in the rain all the time. Cletus Cassidy, straight up murderer. But even so, like it was that was just kind of a weird choice that Andy Serkis decided to continue. Because he did not direct the first one. But he decided to continue that same visual model in this. And I was not quite sure why. Um, some of the other things that I thought were odd in this... There is an insane amount of ADR. So recording, audio recording that is done, put in post. There are so many scenes when characters are not facing the camera, having some sort of interaction, or facing the camera, but it is dark, and you can just tell they layered in dialogue after the fact. Whether that was through rewrites, whether that was something that they felt they needed to do after, I truly do not know. But there was so much ADR in this that it was distracting. And I, and it was just, it was in weird places where I was like, okay, you can have the characters say those things, but why intentionally shade their mouths or intentionally show them with their backs turned? There, there's a specific scene where uh, I would just say that Shriek and Carnage or Cletus Cassidy are kind of like, dancing around a fire in the dark, their mouths are not moving yet. There's a lot of ADR happening over it. And again, it was just, it was odd. I just, I'm not sure why they did that. The movie itself, as far as the general framework does not really make sense uh, in a, in a few different areas. So yeah, but again, most folks who who are going into this who want to see a Venom movie where there is funny interactions with Tom Hardy, where there are funny interactions with uh, Dr. Dan, just like there were in the or yeah, in the first one, those are still there. And Reed Scott as Dr. Dan has some fantastic lines in this. Peggy Lou as Mrs. Chen has some great lines in this. But so much of this movie just does not make sense. And in ways that could be easily fixable, especially with a 90-minute runtime. So that was kind of weird. I feel like this movie, I mean, as odd as this sounds, it is more grounded than the first movie. Where they had to introduce the symbiote and they had to introduce these things. And there was, of course, this giant globular 
symbiote fight in that one as well. But this is a more grounded movie. Even though there is this murderer who gets a symbiote and they also have this amorphous blob that is slicing and attacking each other. But it does... It, it is more grounded, I guess I guess I would just say. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the people were good in this. I think Andy Serkis does a better job with this from a directorial standpoint. And I think part of that is... A big part of that is due to Kelly Marcel, who was, again, the writer. And so I think that her vision kind of came through and made it a little bit more cohesive. Still does not make a lot of sense. I truly wish that they would show Carnage and the differentiation between the two symbiotes more. Because, again, in the comics, Carnage, I mean, he was just this bright red. I mean, Mark Bagley... Uh, Randy Emberlin, like they were the artist and inker for a lot of those like classic issues. And in this, he is just in the dark all the time. And that that just that was kind of a shame. So uh yeah, there we go. That that is kind of a wrap-up on on Venom. Uh my rating for for this film, if you are listening to this for the first time, there are three choices: no stars, no letter grades, good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something that you would recommend to a friend. A bad film is something that you came out of the theater being like, yeah, that was okay. Ugly, avoid at all costs. Um, I mean, I'm going to give this a bad. I want to give it a good, mainly just based off of Tom Hardy acting his ass off. But this movie is bad. Uh, it just is assaultingly loud. And maybe that is me being sensitive after not being in a theater for a while and seeing a movie like this in a theater but when this movie is loud it is shockingly loud and just abrasive so again maybe maybe that is me maybe when I start going back to more movies like this and the Fast and the Furious movies and Transformers like movies that are generally really loud maybe I will get used to it again but something about this movie I mean it was assaultingly loud so I'm going to give it a bad, and I hate to say that. Um, I actually had written down that I was going to give it a good, but the more I started talking about it, it switched into bad. So uh, there we go. Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which is in theaters currently. Moving on to No Time to Die, the latest James Bond film, the 26th, I believe, James Bond film. Uh, This, again, has gone through so many different iterations and release schedules and so much drama around this film part of that drama was Daniel Craig after the last film going on a tirade for months about how he hated the film hated the franchise hated the working conditions never wanted to be Bond again like he went hard in interviews and it was really weird and people were like okay is this a, a way to get more money like for the next film does he did he really not enjoy his experience what is going on so that all happened and then like a year or so later you know kind of fizzled out they started working on this movie and this kind of is Daniel Craig's penultimate film in the Bond franchise it picks up again similar to Venom it picks up after the events of the last movie where we get you know Bond retiring Again, for the 50th time. 
uh, as he has done God, so many times. And he's with Madeline, who we know from the previous film, just trying to live a quiet life, trying to put the past behind him, trying to finally shut that door and find out what a life outside of being the super spy is. Of course, that does not last um, because this is a Bond film. And what is interesting is the intro, kind of the cold openings for all of the Bond films, before they get to the title sequence, you know, you always have something that kicks off the action, something that starts the film, and then it goes into the classic Bond title sequence. If you view those as short films, which essentially they are, sometimes they are five minutes, sometimes they're a little bit longer, those are essentially James Bond short films guiding you into the tone of that movie you are about to watch. This short film, the beginning of this, started out really slow, like a lot of them do, but it definitely ramped up. And I really liked that short film leading into the title sequence. I thought it was well done. I thought it was interesting. Uh, as the movie progresses, though, boy, does it get messy. And it gets messy so quickly and so poorly. Um, I would just read the description uh, for this one. James Bond has left active service. His peace is short-lived when Felix Leiter, an old from the CIA, turns up asking for help, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like 90% of all James Bond movies? Yes, because it is. And yet with some of them, it still works. Some of them, that giant MacGuffin with the you know, megalomaniacal villain who wants to take over the world by some thing. It works. It is silly, but it works and has worked for 26 films. This one gets so, so sloppy. Uh, and one of, my, one of my biggest problems with this film is as it goes on with this MacGuffin, I do not need to go into the details of it because it is every James Bond film. It, it truly is. It follows the formula to a T. <laughs> James Bond tries to retire. He has the love of his life. He has drama with the love of his life. He then goes on to do something else. Oh, there are new agents. Oh, there are new villains. Same thing over and over and over again. But one of the things that this movie does that just bothered me, it critically underutilizes the female characters again. This is the 26th Bond movie, and I feel like they still do not know how to write women in their movies. We get Ana de Armas in this movie, who I love. She is amazing, great actress. We get her for like a hot 10-minute sequence, and she, her character is just grating, where it is just like the quintessential like ditzy agent but it just it does a huge disservice to her as an actor her as a character she could have done so much not just as the actress Anadarmas but that character it was a really interesting character that we get for a short time but they just do nothing with her and then of course Lashana Lynch as Nomi coming into this film and coming into all of the marketing when she was announced as kind of the new 007. Everybody lost their damn minds. 
Not only is she a woman, she is a dark-skinned woman. And people are like, but are they going to name her Jane Bond? This isn't my James Bond. Who cares? Shut up. Stop complaining. Uh, it is time for things to change. And in this film, we get her introduced as the new 007 because, again, James Bond, as 007, retired. When you retire, you, your designation needs to go to somebody else. It goes to her. We get some good interactions with her, and she is a phenomenal actress. But again, nothing, nothing is done correctly with her to show that this franchise is now hers. Or maybe not even this franchise. If they do a side one, whatever they want to do, they announce that she is the new 007. In this film, she is the new 007. So give her that respect. Because she deserves it. She needs it. We want it. Give it to us. And yet they downplay it so often in this. And yes, we have some witty banter between James Bond and Nomi. They go into a place and they look and they say 007. And they both turn their heads. We get it. It is clever. Those moments were kind of funny. But she, her character, earned that designation as 007 when James Bond left. Through her wit through her strength through her everything that james bond had to do to get that designation in mi6 she obviously did it and yet why do we not give her not what not why do we why did they not give her the tools to show why she got that designation it just that was so bizarre um her character makes really bizarre choices as well at one point, her and James are arguing about like, oh, it's just a number. It's this and that. It does not really matter. But she gives up the designation essentially in a scene, a kind of throwaway scene. But she gives it up and like gives it back to him. And then she even says like, oh, it's just a number. But you earned that number, Lashana. Like you earned that. And they just, they throw it away. And I do not understand that. Uh, but we do get, again, some of the same people back. We have Naomi Harris as Money Penny. Uh, Naomi Harris is keeping busy, and I love it. She is amazing. I wish they gave her more to do in Venom as Shriek, because it was just odd what they did with her. Uh, and this is Money Penny. She is back again. We get Rafe Fiennes as M, Jeffrey Wright as Felix, uh, Christoph Waltz as Blofeld. Uh, so we get, you know, some of those same folks back. And again, around the same plot that every James Bond film has been doing forever. The new character, Rami Malek, as Lucifer Safin. Safin. He, is, he is going to go down in history. And again, you can, you can rank the Bond villains. You can talk about all of the Bond villains. Some of them are super cool. Christoph Waltz as Blofeld. It was an interesting kind of way they did that character. An interesting reveal in the last film of like, brother question mark maybe to james bond uh which they completely threw away in this movie in one line of dialogue and it was just silly how quickly they threw away that whole plot line from the last movie but whatever uh rami malek fantastic actor love him in so many things this is the worst uh maybe not worst i would have to go back and rewatch some of the old bond films i will say in my recent memory this is the worst Bond film or Bond villain 
in a long time. And what was hard about that, this movie, as opposed to Venom, clocks in at almost three hours. This, this movie is two hours and 45 minutes. And yet, why did they cut so much of Rami's backstory? And I say that without knowing what they cut, but my goodness, anybody watching this film and watching his kind of character's arc, it feels like there is an hour of explanation of his character, of what happened to his family, to where they lived, all of these things that is not in there. Almost to the point where it feels like they're making references to scenes that were cut or things that we should already know about, but nothing is there. His... His modus operandi, his thing that he wants to do is take this genetic weapon that only targets certain people, certain genetics, certain DNA, and kill people, kill certain demographics and sell it because, of course, that is what a Bond villain does. But his reasonings for that just do not make sense. We get all of these allusions to his father and the things that they had to go through as a family and this poison island they grew up on or he grew up on and we know that he is physically damaged but they kind of make allusions to maybe he is immortal or that his his age was halted at a certain point because when we see him years later he looks this it does not make sense like i'm i was doing the math while watching this movie and i'm like okay if this character interacted with this person at this age and this character interacted with this person at this age, none of it really makes sense. But then it feels like there was an explanation, that there was something there. We just do not get the time to know about it. Why you do not have time in almost three hours to do that, I do not understand. It was just, th this was a tough movie. I love Bond films for the most part. I really enjoy Daniel Craig's Bond because he feels gritty, grounded. I mean, when you watch some of the older ones from the 70s, it gets ridiculous. But I like the Craig ones because he gets beat up, he gets blown up, he gets damaged, and he carries that damage through the film. It is not like some of the old movies where Bond gets punched a couple times or kicked a couple times. Next scene, next day, he is fine. And this one, like Daniel Craig, in his kind of potato face that he carries on in every film, but he is great, um, he gets beat up and he gets cut and he like, but he shows it. And I like that about this. But I, I just do not understand the choices they made in this film. You know, in a roller coaster, here, here's an analogy that I thought of in the shower after I saw this movie. Um, in a roller coaster where you're going up, 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 and you have this excitement, you have this exhilaration, you come down, put your hands in the air, and everybody is excited, and then it slows down again, and then it goes up, you know, and it has that kind of peaks and valleys type of feel where you have a moment to catch your breath, to get excited for what could be next, and then the next thing happens, and you get excited again. In this movie, when it peaks, when it hits, and you are on that downslope, it is exciting, it is fun, it is a James Bond movie, but wow, does it take its time 
on those kind of flat parts of the track, if I want to continue that analogy. It really takes its time. So then by the time you start going up and up and up to get to the next thing, you have to be like, wait, but why? What is happening? What? Why is this character doing this? Like, it just, it does not make sense. Uh, and a lot was said about this movie as far as like Daniel Craig's last outing as Bond and how they were going to do that and everything. I will say I really did like the way they kind of wrapped that up. Uh, towards the end of this movie, they wrap that up, they close the door on this, and it, and it, there's a definitive kind of end to, to this. And then, <laughs> at the end of the credits, there are four words that made me angry. And anybody who has seen a James Bond film will know what those four words are. I will not ruin it or anything. But come on. Come on. Like, it just, it made me angry. Because they, they, they did a capstone. Like, they, they wrapped it up. It was nice. It was done. And then they made a choice among many choices in this film that did not make sense. Uh, there were not very many gadgets in this movie, which a lot of people go into James Bond movies to get. There were, there were some, and they were interesting. But that is okay. These Bond movies, these Daniel Craig movies, were not heavy on those like they relied on the old ones. And that is okay. Uh, but everybody in this film, I think, does a decent job. Um, I love Billy Magnuson in everything. Billy Magnuson is hilarious. He plays the CIA agent Logan Ash in this. Uh, he cracks me up. Really, really funny actor. The the other villains in this, because you always have the main villain and then his henchmen. We get one of those in here. I kind of liked him, but not much. Uh, everyone else, like, I, I just do not know, like, the manufactured emotion that this film tries to pull on only really hits maybe, like, two times. And you see them coming. You, you, you know what they're going to be. They kind of work, but I just do not know. Uh, this was a, I would not even say disappointment, because I really did not have anything banking on this going into it. Uh, Kerry Fukunaga is also the director. I forgot to mention that at the top. Um, so I'm not going to say it was a disappointment. I'm just going to say that I just was not that impressed with the majority of the movie. Loved, loved, loved the cinematography and everything because that was flat out gorgeous. I think I wrote down the cinematographer. Um, Linus Sandgren. Sandgren was the cinematographer gorgeous like stunningly gorgeous backdrops for everything and they film on location i mean it was that part phenomenal the practical car chase things and the motorcycle chases love that too all almost every character in this film makes decisions though even in these glorious beautiful settings they make decisions that are not even in line with kind of the character that we have come to know, uh, which was also weird. Um, I will say one scene, uh, this is a, I, I mean, a little bit spoilery, but not really. Basically, there is a scene where somebody <laughs> is protecting someone else and is trying to get them from A to B safely. Why? We don't really know, but they need to get them from A to B. 
And yet at one point, the character they're trying to protect says something that the other person does not like. And they just kill them. They just murder them. And all of us in the theater, like, we're all just kind of sitting there. I even looked at a couple of the critics around me at the press screening, and we were just like, what? It just, it was, again, it, it made no sense. Like, you're trying to get this person from A to B. They say something, and then you just end their life right there. Makes no sense. Absolutely makes no sense. Anyway. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as Daniel Craig's kind of last outing as James Bond, they wrapped up his thing. I, again, I, I liked the way they wrapped it up in certain ways, one particular way. Um, I really, really hope Lashana Lynch gets her 007 movie, even if they just name it 007. Like, they stopped, like, this is not James Bond, No Time to Die. This is just called No Time to Die, and then it has, like, the little 007 thing on it. Give me Lashana Lynch's 007 movie immediately. Pump it into my veins. But give her something to do. Ugh. Yeah, super frustrating in that regard. Okay, with all of that being said, my official rating for No Time to Die is bad. This is a three-hour movie that left, it feels like, an hour, if not more, on the cutting room floor. I, I do not know why the editors made the choices they made. I do not know why the writers made the choices they made or the director or the characters. This movie is a mess and I wish I would have liked it more. But I just this is a Bond movie that I will forget about quickly. And a Bond movie that I will probably not watch again. And that sucks. Um, Casino Royale, the new one with Daniel Craig. like I have seen that several times. I like a lot of that movie. This is a Bond movie similar to a couple other Bond movies that I just, the rewatchability of it is almost zero. So there we go. Okay, last film, a complete departure from the previous two films. Uh, this movie is called Lamb, directed by Valdemir Johansson. This is an all Icelandic movie. And so I might butcher a bunch of the names, and I apologize for that. Uh, this is from my favorite studio, A24. And wow, this movie is an A24 movie to the nth degree. So if you like A24 movies, yeah, uh, this, this is right in your wheelhouse. This film uh, takes place in rural Icelandic mountain region. I will say, and similar to the last movie, No Time to Die, the scenery and the cinematography of this film blew me away. Like, this is a gorgeous film to watch. Um, and actually, I do, I don't think I wrote down the cinematographer. Let me pull it up real quick. Cinematographer Eli Aronson. It looks like one of the only non-Icelandic people on the cast or crew. Uh... Gorgeous, gorgeous job. And not just with the landscape, but how the landscape affects the movie and affects the tone of the movie. So, speaking of the tone of the movie, this movie uh, is about a couple, a husband-wife, who live in this rural Icelandic region who are sheep farmers, uh, who have a bunch of sheep, 
And it is just the two of them hanging out every day, living their life out there. Uh, until one of their sheeps gives birth to a sheep that has a sheep's head and a child's body. Or at least half of a child's The lower half is the body of a child. It <clears throat> Excuse me. It has a human left hand and a lamb right hoof. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it just kind of goes from there. And they welcome this lamb child, this lamb human child, into their lives. Into their lives. And they raise it as, as their own. Um, this movie only has three human characters, or at least three human characters that we get to know. Uh, we get Numi Rapace, uh, who most people will know, most Americans will know, as the girl from the Dragon Tattoo series. She is a phenomenal actress, uh, who actually, she is Swedish, but she lived in Iceland for a few years as a child. This movie takes place in Iceland, has an Icelandic cast, Icelandic director, it, spoken, like all the dialogue is Icelandic. Like, this is Iceland to the core, and so it is pretty cool that she kind of got to reconnect with that part of her family, that part of her life, uh, the actress, and do this movie in Icelandic. So, uh, <laughs> it is this, this is a tough movie to describe in the sense of the plot is so simple in that, like, oh, yeah, a lamb gives birth to a half lamb, or not even half lamb, a human child with a lamb's head, and they raise it as their own. Cool. What? Like, what else do you say about that? Uh, the other actors in this, other than Numi Rapace, is oof, Hilmer Snyer Gudensen. Sorry. And then Bjorn Hilnar Haraldsson. My Icelandic is super rough. Sorry to all of those people involved in this. Um, but Maria and Ingvar, who are Numi Rapace and Hilmar uh, Gudensen, like, those are, those are the husband and wife who then raise this child. The other actor, Peter, is the brother who shows up. And when I say shows up, I mean he just shows up in the sense of, like, his character's introduction um, is one of the most random introductions ever. I mean, similar to what I talked about with No Time to Die, how there are there's, like, an hour of that film on the cutting room floor. This movie is similar, except... This movie is definitely for folks who, who who like questions in their movies that do not get answered. Because so much of this movie leads you to questions and leads you to wonder what is going on. Guess what? It never answers them. Uh, or never answers them in ways that might be satisfying to most people. Uh, but... It, it does it, and it makes that choice. Everyone in this, like this three-character ensemble, is solid. They work really well together. The interactions are, are genuine. The care and compassion they have for this lamb child is, is genuine. Like, it feels good. And what I like about this, and again, like I talked about a couple times, this movie is Iceland, Iceland, Iceland. What people need to understand about Icelandic culture and Nordic culture in general, when most people think of the Nordic countries, the five Nordic countries, 
They think of Vikings. They think of all of that. Cool. That was a thousand years ago. But like to this day, one of the things that has really carried through to current Nordic culture is this belief of myth and magic and elves and trolls and gnomes. Those are still very much part of Nordic culture today in 2021. The Vikings stopped pillaging. Like the Viking age was like 1050 or 1060 AD. But today, like when they do current when they do construction projects in certain parts of Iceland, they have to talk to regional consultants about if moving certain rocks will upset the elves, will upset the natural order of things in that part of the country, in that part of the village, wherever they are. They take it seriously, and I love that. I absolutely love that their connection to nature and their surroundings that is based in myth and magic has real-world implications. Like, there are people who talk about, like, hey, we cannot move we cannot put this road here because if we move this rock the elves are going to get mad the tractors will stop working the there will be injuries on the construction site we need to find a different way to do that and then they listen and they divert it and they divert it to somewhere else do a different way to not upset the natural order of things i love that so i think some people watching this movie who maybe might not have that piece are going to be like whoa 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 <laughs> why do these humans, this human couple, why are they totally okay with from birth to then raising this child are totally normal about it. They're like, oh, okay, this is, yeah, this is kind of weird, but whatever. We can take baths together. We can eat breakfast together. Because Icelandic culture and Nordic culture in general has so much of a different attitude and structure around things you cannot explain, around myth and around magic that there would kind of be, especially in rural Iceland where they are, where they're the only people around, that connection to the earth, that connection to your country, the place where you come from, there is an acceptance there. And so I liked that. I really liked that about this film. But I will say that some people might struggle with the aspects of this film that, again, it oof, you want to question so much of this film and you, you are not going to get answers. That is not a spoiler. You just are not going to get answers. Um, one of the hardest things that I had with this movie, there's a lot of graphic animal imagery in this. Like you see lamb births and everything. Okay, cool. It is natural. This is, this is, this is very uh, natural, I will say. You see them kind of like getting their ears clipped and punched with their tag because these are sheep farmers. Um, that was hard for me. There are two things in movies that I struggle with when it comes to visuals. I can watch a human get hacked in half with a chainsaw by some psycho murderer. Yeah, okay, I'm all right with that. I can watch dinosaurs or monsters rip a human apart, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm all right with that. The two things that I cannot stand in any sort of not even horror movie, movie in general, hypodermic or syringe, hypodermic needles or syringes. Absolutely. I will turn my head away. I will not watch the screen. It can be somebody after they have been stabbed and shot. And I'm okay with that. A doctor comes along to give them a tetanus shot. 
and I will turn away. I just cannot handle it. It, it grosses me out. The other thing are animal injuries, like animals getting hurt. It, 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 it pulls at my core, and I find that really hard. In this movie, I struggled. I really struggled with, with a few parts of this. And maybe because this was filmed in Iceland, I'm not sure. One of the things that I can kind of give myself peace with is at the end of some movies when it says, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. It has a little disclaimer. Um, I do not remember this movie having this disclaimer. And that concerns me. That makes me feel icky. Because even though I turned away from some of the scenes, I'm like, I am pretty sure that was a real animal. So that part was a little bit weird. It made me, yeah, weird. But um, along with this framework of this family raising this <laughs> this sheep child, this lamb child, um, we have this kind of ominous presence, I will say, that we feel from the beginning through the end that kind of pulls at these things. And this is going back to the cinematography like I talked about before. The land and the landscape plays a character in this film. This takes place in a part of Iceland that probably has like 20 hours of daylight a day. So this film is so brightly lit in so much of the movie. And I love that aspect also. Because if you're going to show some weird stuff, show it in the daylight. Make us see it. Make us feel that uncomfortableness of this lamb child. So that I really, really liked. The way the fog moves in. The way that the score, the very, very minimal score in this plays a character. I love that also. And again, if you like A24 films that have to do with character development and setting and a very um, slow pace is one way to put it. A, mm, actually, no, I, I was going to try and find a different way to say that this movie is slow. This movie does take some patience with it, but it is beautiful. It, it truly is beautiful. And this is Valdemir Johansson's first feature film. And I think they do a really good job. I think it works as far as a character study and as far as something that ties so much to Icelandic folklore and myth. I think that was the perfect choice. So, yeah. So if you like A24 films, you are going to want to see this. If you like super weird films that make you feel uncomfortable in, in ways, this might be the film for you. And if you like movies that ask a lot of questions that you will never get the answers to, this is definitely the movie for you. Uh, so my official rating for Lamb. Uh, I'm going to give this a good. This might not be one that I go back to like some of the other A24 films. Uh, because you do have to be in the kind of the right mindset for this, for a very methodically paced film. But I loved the connection to mythology. I loved the connection to folklore and to the land and to the atmosphere of Iceland and the Nordic countries. I thought that was great. Uh, all the actors were great in this as well. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, I, I would just stop there. So it gets a good. So to recap this episode that ended up being longer than I thought, because they always end up longer than I thought, or thought, think, whatever. Uh, Venom, I gave a bad two because it is just abrasively loud. It is in the dark. It is in the rain. You get a little bit of character development. Um, and also, this film truly just feels like... Th there's a very sloppy way that they 
I will say bring this into the world that we know of in the MCU. We knew it was going to happen. We knew that Sony was not going to let this go on without them tying into the MCU. They do it. It is sloppy. It is weird. But it happens. So that gets a bad. No Time to Die uh, also gets a bad because it is almost three hours and makes no sense. It is a three-hour movie that they either could have split into two movies and kept the things on the cutting room floor that they took out that would somehow make this make sense. But they did not, and they made one three-hour movie, and it is a mess. And it does not give the women in this film enough to do, does not respect them, does not... Ugh, it, they, they just they misstepped so badly. But it was gorgeous, and the action set pieces were great, um, and I liked the capstone to, to Daniel Craig's uh, journey as Bond, I will say. Uh, and then rounding off with Lamb, which I gave a good to, absolutely gorgeous film. Really interesting character study and setting. So, yeah. There you go. Three movies on this week's episode. Thank you so much for, for listening. I really do appreciate it. Like I said at the top of the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow the podcast on social media at About to Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any questions, comments, want me to review something else, shoot me a message at About to Review, about to review at gmail.com. I have been your host, that guy named John. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.